This is episode 559 of the Leaving Laodicea broadcast, and my name is Steve McCraney. We find the Olivet Discourse, which is Jesus' blueprint of the end times, recorded in three places in the New Testament, Matthew 24 and 25, Mark 13, and Luke 21. The entire teaching is basically Jesus' response to some questions asked by his disciples after they were admiring the beauty of the temple. But Jesus did not specify which answer corresponded to which question. He just answered them all at once in one long narrative. But even in this long narrative, you can see Jesus laying the groundwork for the end times and revealing to us the seven-year tribulation period and the second coming of Christ. But today, we're going to focus on two major characteristics of the end time that Jesus brings out, and these are deception and apostasy. Jesus tells us to beware of deception, and Paul speaks of the coming, and now here, great apostasy. And both are telltale signs of the end times. So join us today as we look specifically at the coming great deception and apostasy as we cling to the truth and learn how to leave Laodicea behind. Today, we're going to be looking at Matthew chapter 24 primarily as we go through this blueprint of the end times. Once you understand how God has laid this out, then it makes it much easier to realize where we are on that prophetic calendar. We can see where we've come from. We can see where we are. We can see what Jesus says we're going to be struggling with, how we need to prepare our faith spiritually, and then we're going to know what's coming. There are a lot of blind spots in here. Um, For example, we have the rapture of the church, and then we have this peace treaty that the Antichrist makes from a 10-country confederation or 10-area confederation in the revived Roman Empire that makes with Israel that inaugurates the um, the seven-year tribulation period or the 70th week of Daniel. We just don't know how long it's from the rapture to that covenant being made. And then we see the things that are going to happen during the first three and a half years, and they're just not going to all of a sudden, boom, take place as soon as the covenant is written and the tribulation begins and have wars and rumors of wars and pestilence and all that. It's not like the world never has war. It never has rumors of wars. It never has pestilences or illnesses or earthquakes and volcanoes and terrible times. Then all of a sudden, when this peace treaty is signed, all that stuff comes upon us and we go, wow, things have changed. It's not that way at all. All this stuff is happening now, building up to a crescendo that when the tribulation period takes place, the intensity of these events that we're already experiencing increases maybe tenfold. And so everything that we're reading in here that uh, will happen at some point out there will actually be happening here. Will How bad will it get prior to the rapture? Will the Gog and Magog war that we talk about in Ezekiel, will that take place during the first three and a half years of the tribulation period, or will it take place prior to the rapture or the period between the rapture, a lot of debate on that, between the rapture and the seven-year tribulation period? That will have profound effects on what happens to us as a nation right now. Is what's going on in Taiwan, and, and I don't know if you read yesterday, but the United States is sending 
radiation monitors. So they've already got them over there in Ukraine right now because they expect Putin to uh, use some tactical nukes before the end of the summer. I mean, this is coming from our intelligence agencies. And so it's really, really strange times in which we live right now. We are depleting our strategic oil supply. We are depleting our arms. As a matter of fact, I read an article yesterday that said that if a war broke out in between China and Taiwan, and we went over and tried to do what we said we would do and defend the independence of Taiwan, that we would run out of munitions in less than a week. It is incredible what's happening right now. And it's all prophetic. In order for the in order for Israel to actually sign a peace treaty guaranteeing its existence um, with the Antichrist, it means that the protector of Israel since they became a nation on May 14, 1948, which is us, will no longer be able to do that. And so it has a profound effect on how we live, what we do, and it's something that we need to take very seriously. So general overview that we've talked about. We've looked at uh, the Lord's blueprint on a for the Gentile nations in Daniel chapter 2. We talked uh, last week about the image and the various world powers that will govern the world. And of course, what Daniel was most interested in was the legs and the feet with the ten toes, partly of iron, partly of clay. And it's during that time, this revived Roman Empire, that this rock cut without hands which symbolizes the Lord Jesus Christ, comes and shatters the entire statue, all the Gentile powers. They all come down and are blown away like chaff. And of course, that rock grows into this great mountain, which is the kingdom of God. We have the same imagery in Daniel chapter 7, only here they're various beasts. And it gives us just a little more detail about uh, what's going to happen. We get to Daniel chapter 9, which is the in my opinion, the most incredible prophecy in the Old Testament, which prophesies to the very day the triumphal entry of Jesus Christ, and it talks about this 70th week that will happen sometime in the future where the Antichrist will come with speaking pompous and blasphemous words and sit on the Bema seat to be worshipped as God, which gives us an image of of what it talks about in the book of Revelation, this abomination of desolation, that Daniel uses that phrase, and so does Christ. And then we get to Matthew 24 and 25, where Jesus basically lays out for us the schemata or the blueprint of what's going to happen in the end. You asked, I'm going to share, is like what Jesus says. And he, he uh, up until verse number 31, he kind of lays it out chronologically. Verse 32 through 35, he gives this parable of a fig tree, which is um, pretty fascinating when you understand the imagery of a fig tree in the Old Testament. Then he ends it by talking about the day and the hour. And in verse chapter 25, he gives very all these parables that talk about the end times. They talk about how important it is for us to be ready for what he has coming. There's also the Ezekiel 36 and 38 passages, which talk about this war. And you can actually see the imagery in there where it talks about some sort of nuclear conflict where the ground is, uh, uh, is uninhabitable and the people will go out and they'll mark bones and say you can't hang around those bones anymore. And it it's talks about the resurgence of Israel and 
what's going to happen at the end. And then, of course, there's the book of Revelation from chapter 4 to chapter 22, which talks about the things that take place on earth and in heaven after the church age is over and after the rapture takes place. And we're going to tie all of this together in um, a picture of what we can expect and where we are right now in the end times. But today and next week and probably the week after, we're going to focus primarily on Matthew chapter 24 and 25 as our base and then springboard out from there, bringing in passages from these other uh, prophetic uh, books to uh, help us understand the parallel between Matthew chapter 24 and the four horsemen of the apocalypse and the kingdom parables and stuff of that nature. And you will find that if you can get away from the fear of tomorrow, meaning, you know, it's going to upset my life and my personal goals and my standard of living and stuff of that nature, if you can get your mind away from that, it is a fabulous time to live. It is the time that I think Paul would have loved to live, seeing the possibility of the actual return of Jesus Christ in our lifetime. Wouldn't that be amazing? And to see how he puts all these things together. And so once you take your mind off your problems and focus on his glory, everything seems to change. So we've got this Olivet Discourse. Jesus is... um, on the Mount of Olives, and he's preparing them. Uh, he's he's uh, preaching this message to them. It was not a message that was prepared. He was responding to some questions that they had. And the Olivet Discourse is found in all three Synoptic Gospels. It's found in Matthew, it's found in Mark, and it's found in Luke. You'll find Matthew has the most extensive account. Luke's pretty large, too. And so what we're going to do is we're going to take all three of these and combine them together to make sure that we cover everything that we need to, because when we do, we're going to find out, we're going to catch a lot more of the timing words, such as then or after these things, that helps us put it together um, chronologically. And so in the very beginning, what we're going to do is take a combined view, and I'm just going to give you a combined picture. We do this on Tuesday night a lot. A combined picture of the Matthew, Mark, and Luke passages that lay out for us the question and the answer. And uh, it's pretty amazing. Um, The disciples are marveling over the temple, how beautiful it is, the great buildings, and it's Herod's temple, and how incredible it is. And and Jesus then makes these statements which rock their world. So here it is, the combined account from Matthew. Then Jesus went out and departed from the temple, and his disciples came up to show him the buildings of the temple like he hadn't seen them before. You know, they're at the temple, they're leaving the temple, and the disciples are like, no, 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 look at that, this is incredible. Look at this building, I can't believe it. Here's Solomon's portico, and here's where this happens over there, and it's just incredible. How it was adorned with beautiful stones and donations. How for 40-something years, people had been taxed, and some had made donations to build this huge edifice to the glory of Herod, even though they claimed it was for the glory of God. Then one of his disciples, don't know which one, one of his disciples said, Teacher, see what manner of stones and what buildings are here? Exclamation point. This is great. We are the king of the world. Uh, Israel is the, the greatest of all nations. Rome doesn't have anything 
to even compare with this. Look at this building and how proud we are, because this is the dwelling place of our God. Or so they thought, until Acts chapter 2. Jesus answered that question. And he said to them, Do you not see all these great buildings? The whole temple area. Assuredly, I say to you, the day will come soon in which not one stone shall be left upon another that shall not be thrown down. What Jesus was talking about here was not his body. What Jesus was talking about here was the destruction of the physical temple, which would happen 38 years later when Titus Vespasian would come with the the 5th and 3rd Roman legion and level Jerusalem. And they as a nation for the second time would go out into dysphoria. Uh, Since they no longer had a temple, since they no longer were in control of the holy city, people believed that Judaism would simply just die. And it's the only nation in the history of mankind that resurged after 2,000 years and has a prominent place in our culture today. Not one stone will be left upon another. He already, Jesus already, a couple days or earlier, he already lamented over the fact, cried over Jerusalem because they did not recognize the day of his visitation, that he knew this was going to happen because they rejected their Messiah. And so what he's telling his disciples at that point is, guys, everything that you think is great is all going to be destroyed. You're admiring an edifice, thinking that God lives in buildings made by men, by men, Uh, which is exactly the phrase that got Stephen killed in the book of Acts. And when he told them that, their whole idea and identity as a Jew was shattered because everything about their religion was temple-based. My sins could not be atoned for except on the Day of Atonement or by me bringing a sacrifice to some priest and some priest carrying on some ritual and blood being spilled. I'm lost in my relationship with God, unless the temple is there, the priests are there, sacrifices take place, everything is focused here, and the disciples had not yet gotten to the point that they understood that Jesus was that final sacrifice that Paul spoke about in the book of Romans. The disciples are troubled. They see the temple, they make some big hoop to do about it, Um, Jesus makes this statement about the future, and they're quiet. They walk out of the Eastern Gate, they go across the Kidron Valley, they go up into the Mount of Olives, who knows if dinner's being cooked or something's happening, and they're thinking about it, they're mulling it over in their mind. They don't really want others to know about this, or maybe they're embarrassed by asking this question, thinking that maybe they should know better than they do. But as he sat down on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, and we find out now that the inner circle comes to him, the spokesman of the disciples. Peter, James, John, and Andrew come to him privately. Uh, Lord, could we, uh, we have a moment with you, please? Sure. What's on your mind? Uh, what, what you said back there is frightening. I mean, how can our temple be destroyed when you're the king of kings and lord of lords? And we still think that you're going to restore the kingdom to Israel. Matter of fact, we're going to ask you that in Acts chapter 1, right before your ascension. We still think that somehow you're going to defeat Rome, you're going to exalt us as a people, we're going to sit on the 12 tribes, uh, ruling, uh, sit on 12 thrones, ruling the, uh, the world right now, and, and we expect that to happen imminently. 
And so how can you say the temple is going to be destroyed? Teacher, tell us. I'm, I'm troubled here. When, when will these things be that you just said? What's going to happen? Um, when, is, when is the temple going to be destroyed? He could have said in 38 years, A.D. 70, but he didn't. What will be the sign of all these things that are about to take place? How will we know when it's coming? And what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? I appreciate the questions they ask. I appreciate less the format Jesus used to answer the questions because they asked three questions and Jesus gave one long answer. There's there's no break in the text to show you a delineation of, hey, this happens here and this is the answer to your second question. Oh, by the way, Peter, what was your third question? Oh, yeah, when is going to be the, the sign of your coming and the sign of the end of the age? Oh, let me answer that one for you. So we could easily see the answers to the questions here. Instead, Jesus began this, gave this narrative, and you'll find in this long narrative, this two-chapter narrative, it's not broken up by black print where he pauses. Do you understand that? Yes, let me answer your second question to make it easier for us. Instead, it just kind of flows but if you look at the way it flows, you'll find out that it fits perfectly the end times. Perfectly. He starts out by talking about the periods that take place before the tribulation and during the first three and a half years. Then he talks about what happens at the midpoint of the tribulation. Then he starts talking about the great tribulation, the last three and a half years. Then he begins to talk a little bit about after that, what happens after the tribulation and what's going to happen when he returns? And then in verse 32, he talks about this parable of a fig tree, which we're going to spend quite a bit of time on, and then gives these other statements about you need to be ready. You need to understand what's going to happen, that um, don't take this for granted. What we're going to do is we're going to, for the next couple of weeks, is look at the Matthew passage, and we're going to go through the, the in-depth. We're going to go through the prior to the tribulation, uh, the rapture and the tribulation, and the stuff that happens during the first three and a half years. Then we're going to talk about, we're going to use the, the format here in Matthew. Then we're going to use, talk about the uh, midpoint, the abomination of desolation, and then finally the great tribulation that Jesus called it, the last three and a half years where the Lord poured his wrath out. And so... Uh, uh, as we do this, I think it'll become a little bit more clearer. Jesus did not specifically delineate these things in the text, but watch how they flow. Matthew 24, 4 through 14, talks about the beginning of birth pains and the first three and a half years of the tribulation period. It's this 70th week of Daniel that in the midpoint is is marked by this event that the Antichrist does, this abomination of desolation from Daniel, from uh, Jesus and Matthew and Mark and Luke, and also uh, from the book of Revelation. And so these are the events that take place prior to the beginning of birth pains and during the first part of the tribulation period. Chapter 4, I mean chapter 24, verse 4. And Jesus answered them and said... And I'm just going to use the Matthew account here, but as we begin to break this down and understand what's coming, um, we will use a combined account. It says, take heed that no one deceives you. Oh, wow. So the first hallmark here of what's going to happen is deception. In what way? 
For many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and will deceive many. I want to piggyback on what Vic said. Um, This does not necessarily mean that there will be a bunch of people running around saying, I am Jesus. Although in the text, it is implied that that probably will happen. But it also has a deeper meaning that there will be a bunch of people running around saying, I am what Jesus is really. In other words, what I am sharing with you is what Christianity is. This is how Jesus would really respond. Jesus loves everybody. Jesus loves even sinners. If Jesus was here today, he'd be all about social justice. He'd be all about embracing the LGBT, whatever community. He'd be all about those poor transgender people. He would understand the plight of women who were sexually active outside of marriage, committed a sin, now have a consequence as a a young child and decides that they want to murder their child, that it's okay that he would be all about the Jesus we're creating today. So when it talks about coming in his name, saying, I'm the Christ and will deceive many, it has that meaning also. And you'll hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not troubled for all these things must, must take place. But the end is not yet. So we've got nation against nation. We've got regions against regions, tribes and ethnic groups against each other. But hey, it's only going to get worse because the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. And there will be famines and pestilences or plagues and earthquakes in various places. And all of these things are not the end. They're just pains labor pains that a woman has before she gives birth. These are the beginning of sorrows, it says in New King James. But if you, your newer translations kind of do a better job at this, if you'll look up the word, it means the pain associated with childbirth. If you remember, have you seen it or heard about it, these pains begin, I, I think this boy, I'm monitoring these, and, and now it's seven minutes apart and three minutes apart, and now they're just a minute apart, and every time I'm having them, they're more intense and they're more painful as my body is getting ready to, to expel this, this living child. And so you rush into the, the hospital, and then they put the monitors on them the, and all that kind of stuff, and it's, it's just painful and painful and painful, especially back then when they didn't have epidurals and stuff of that nature, until all of a sudden there's this final last push. Boom, it happens. And once the baby comes, I know it was in my wife's situation, she forgot about the pain. That was in the past. Oh, here's the baby. And, you know, she's holding this young child. And everything we're talking about here, wars, rumors of wars, false Christ, false pictures of Christianity, uh, trying to make Jesus woke. Um, all these things that are going to happen, earthquakes and tsunamis and volcanoes and pestilences and worldwide illnesses and all that kind of stuff. When we get to Revelation, we're talking about hyperinflation and we're talking about, uh, you know, man works all day long just to be able to have enough food for himself. All that kind of stuff is just the beginning of all of this, but the end is not yet. It's going to get much worse. And these are all just the beginning, beginning of this event. What happens next? Persecution takes place. Then they will deliver you to tribulation and kill you. 
and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. So much so that it will infect your family, and you'll have own family members and friends and people that you trusted will turn against you. And then many will be offended and betray one another and will hate one another. Then then many, all these timing passages, and then many false prophets will arise second time now and deceive many. And because lawlessness will abound, the love of many will grow cold. But he who endures to the end will be saved. He who holds on to his faith and this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world as a witness to the nations. And then... You should circle those then passages. The end will come. I mean, this is what takes place prior to the tribulation period and during, using a broad brush, during the first three and a half years of the uh, tribulation period where things are getting bad. The wrath of God is not yet poured out on mankind. That doesn't happen until the second half. But uh, things are getting rough. Things are getting bad. A lot worse than they are now. Uh, read articles this week about, now, first it was Oregon, and now it's California. It's passing legislation that says you can't adopt a child unless you promise to raise them with the understanding that uh, under the LGBT transgender deal, um, um, religion, pretty much. And if you refuse to do that, kid stays in foster care. Really? Really? Where is all this coming from? Nobody cares about the kid. Nobody cares about any of that kind of stuff anymore. This is just just the way it's going to be. The system is so corrupt, and it's even leading to more corruption. Not a fan of Joe Biden, as you know. Joe Biden basically, allegedly, won the election um, last time by hiding in his basement. If you remember, Trump would have these rallies of 20,000 people, and you saw the pictures of Biden with about nine people sitting in circles you know, separated from each other, and yet supposedly he won the election. And so now all of a sudden Biden has a very outspoken uh, opponent. Uh, Robert F. Kennedy Jr. um, has decided that he's going to throw his hat in. He's already at 19%, which is pretty shocking. And uh, so the Democratic elites have said, well, you know what? We're not going to have any debates. There's going to be no primary debates. There's going to be nothing. We're not going to give any other candidate the opportunity to present their case and make Biden look bad. So once again, Biden is going to run an election from the sanctity of his basement. And with the lawsuits that have gone on, um, the Dominion has has brought on Fox News and other people that have capitulated. I mean, it's it's crazy, is it not? And it just happens. And we have a tendency of just ignoring it. And these are all the beginnings of birth pains. Jesus, of course, did not specifically say that's the first three and a half years, but you can see how this flows. Matthew 24, verse 15 to 20, talks about this abomination of desolation, where the Antichrist actually demands to be worshipped as God, right at the midpoint of the tribulation. Therefore, when you see the abomination, verse 15, Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken by Daniel the prophet standing in the holy place, whoever reads, let him understand. Then let those who are on Judea flee to the mountain. Let him who is on the housetop not go down and take anything out of his house. And let him who is on the field not go back and get his clothes. But woe to those who are pregnant and to those who are nursing babes in those days. And pray that your flight 
may not be in winter or on the Sabbath. We'll talk about this in the weeks to come, but what's happening here is at the midpoint of the tribulation period, the Antichrist in a temple that's already been built in Jerusalem will actually sit down on the Bema seat and demand everybody worships him. And so what the Lord is saying here, if you see that happening, if you're still alive, if you're a Jew in Jerusalem at that time, you need to run. You need to flee. You need to go to a place that God has already prepared to protect his people from the wrath that is about to fall, because when this event happens, it then kicks into the last half of the tribulation period, the last 42 weeks, or time, times, times, time, and half times, or 1260 days. This, um, the time that, again, that Jesus called the Great Tribulation, where God pours his wrath out on mankind, and um, um, Jesus is showing us we have a first part of the tribulation, the mid part of the tribulation, and then Matthew 21 through 28, we're dealing with the latter part of the tribulation. This is the, this is the stuff you'll see a lot in the book of Revelation, especially in the last chapters. It talks about the great tribulation, the last three and a half years, or this is when God pours his wrath out. By the way, will you be here when this happens? Not if you're saved. If you're lost and you survive this far, yes. If you're, um, if you're saved, no, you'll not be here when any of this happens. Verse 21, for then, again, you ought to circle these then words, then there will be great tribulation, such as not been since the beginning of the world until this time, nor shall ever be. This is greater than the flood of Noah. And unless those days were shortened, everybody would die. No flesh would be saved, but for the elect's sake, those days will be shortened. Then, if anyone says to you, look, here he is, here's the Christ, or there, do not believe. For again, false Christ and false prophets will arise and show great signs and wonders to deceive, if it was possible, even the elect. It's not possible to deceive the elect, but this shows you how powerful this deception is. And then he says, see, I have told you beforehand. Therefore, if they say to you, look, he is in the desert, do not go. Lord, look, he is in the inner room, do not believe. For as lightning comes from the east and flashes to the west, so also will be the coming of the Son of Man. For wherever the carcass is, there the eagles will be gathered together. We will define that in when we get to it, that phrase. And then, of course, we have this last part where Jesus returns follows chronologically through the first, 20, uh, first 31 verses here, beginning in verse number 29. Immediately after the tribulation, oh, there we go, of those days the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light, the stars will fall from heaven, and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then, another time verse, the sign of the Son of Man will appear in heaven, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send his angels with a great sound of the trumpet, and they will gather together his elect from the four winds and from the ends of the heaven to the other. It's like the sheep and the goats parable he talks about in the next chapter. Um, and then we move into the fig tree and to the warnings and into chapter 25. Pretty phenomenal when you think about it that Jesus lays out for us exactly what's going to happen. And do not be deceived into thinking 
that everything rocks along just like it is until the tribulation begins, and then it gets really bad, but it's okay because we're going to be gone. So we don't need to prepare. We don't need to to worry about it. We're just going to go on to eating and drinking and giving marriage and getting married until, ooh, I remember him saying, until the day of the flood came, and then they were all wiped away. Do you remember? He's telling us what's going to happen in the future for a reason. The Daniel passages are for a reason. The Ezekiel passages are for a reason. Revelation is in here so that we can be forewarned and prepared to be able to be his light in his darkness as the dark, or his light in darkness as the darkness gets much greater. You can read the rest of this chapter, and that's exactly what Jesus is talking about. Don't be asleep at the wheel. Be, as the phrase that I coined, a faith prepper. And if you're not, it's because you've already fallen prey to what happens in verse number four, that you have been deceived. Oh, it's not going to be that bad. Oh, it'll happen way down the road in the future. Oh, none of these signs actually point to anything important. I don't have time to worry about the second return of Christ because I'm building a business and I'm adding an extension in my house and I'm going to have more kids. And, and you know, I, I can't even think about that because it's depressing. It's only depressing if you love the world, by the way. So it's so depressing. And so therefore, I'm just going to pretend like it's not going to happen and you will find yourself in a really bad place. The deception will be so great that if it was possible, every one of us would be swept away and believing the lie. I want to talk just a few minutes in closing about this deception. We find the word deceived in verse number four. We find it again in verse number five. We uh, find the word again in verse number 11. We look over and find it in verse number Uh, 24, it talks about that if it was possible, great signs and wonders, even the elect would be deceived. It seems like the major characteristics of the end time is deception. Again, just here. Jesus answered and said to him, take heed that no one deceives you. For many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ and will deceive many. Many will come in my name and say, it's okay to claim to be a Christian and be like this like the taking the Lord's name in vain that you were talking about. And deception takes place as the light of Christ gets dimmer and the darkness of the world gets greater. Matthew 24, 11 through 12, many false prophets will rise up. Why? And deceive many. And because of lawlessness will abound the love, which, which is the sign of the Christian life, of many will grow cold. Matthew 24, that if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or there, do not believe it. For false Christ and false prophets will arise and grow great signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. And then Jesus says this. I think it's amazing. Hey, I'm letting you guys know how important this is. I'm telling you beforehand. So you'll have no excuse when it happens. None. So what happens when someone is deceived? Well, they take their eyes off Christ, they no longer adhere to the truth, and they apostatize is the word that we uh, find in the Greek. What they do is they walk away from Christianity altogether, or they walk away from biblical Christianity to hold on to some sort of cultural Christianity, which has that, what the New Testament talks about, non-saving faith. 
They claim to be saved, but there's no way they can be by the life they have or the doctrines that they embrace. Or, you know, I'm a Christian because it's cultural, but there's nothing about me that emulates Christ. And the Bible clearly says that this deception will take hold not just during the tribulation time, but in the time prior to that in which we're living, and you'll find this great falling away from the truth, this great falling away of the faith. You find churches that are full of this. I can't tell you the number of churches now that for some reason think it's okay to have transgender perverts do children's church. You know, there's a man, ugly man, dressed up like a woman, which makes her a really ugly woman, and she's calling the little kids together. They're sitting on her lap, and churches are doing this all over the place. Where's this coming from? It's a demonic religion that's taking over our culture today, and it's infested, or it's infested the churches in a powerful way. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Paul, of course, is writing them because um, they're concerned because they've been deceived by either a spirit or a, a prophetic word, or maybe a letter that supposedly came from Paul telling them that the day of Christ had already come, then they somehow missed it. And so Paul is writing them back saying, no, 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 the day of the Lord hasn't come yet because it won't come until these things happen first. Here's what he says. Now, brethren, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, that's the second coming, and our gathering together to him, the rapture. We're talking about the end times. We're talking about the rapture and the second coming of Christ. I don't want you to be upset by by some deception that came your way, by a spirit or a word or a letter from us that the day of the Lord had come, because it hasn't come. You've been deceived purposely. Let no one deceive you in any means. Why? For the day will not come unless first thing, there's a falling away that happens. This is the apostasy. And once the apostasy takes place, then the Son of Man is revealed, the Son of Perdition, who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped. And the, the professing, name only Christian church when this happens, will embrace him. And those, like in Bonhoeffer's day, those that refuse to embrace the deception of the Third Reich, of course, will be marginalized, they'll lose their footing, their standing, and even their lives. This man of sin here, he actually sits in the temple of God. This is the abomination of desolation showing himself that he is God. And just like Jesus said, I told you beforehand, Paul felt in the three weeks he was there teaching them that it was so important to tell them about this. He says, don't you remember when I was there? In addition to the four spiritual laws, in addition to studying your Bible and praying and taking communion and all the stuff we spend years trying to tell people, don't you remember I told you these things when I was with you? Because it's that important. The word apostasy means to depart, to forsake, to fall away. It's, uh, the word is not just a casual falling away. It means a, revel- a rebellion, a revolt. It's a deliberate defection from a formerly held correct religious position. I have known people in my own life that have seemed to be strong, staunch believers in Christ, 
who have totally apostatized, totally defected, and want nothing to do with Jesus except in name only. Always been part of the church in history, but during this time, during the times in which we live, as the birth pains get greater and greater, it will become more pronounced. Let me just share three more verses with you, and then we'll close. Paul is writing his letter to uh, his son Timothy in the faith, and he's warning him about what it takes to pastor a church or to especially uh, deal with the things that are going to happen during the end times. So here's what he tells Timothy towards the close of this letter. Now the Spirit explicitly says that in the latter times, times in which we live right now, some will depart from the faith. So is there any other sign that really picks the latter times that we'll know it's coming? No, primarily it's deception. Primarily it's apostasy. That's what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 25. So how will they, how will they apostatize? How will they walk away? What causes that to happen? Well, simply, they'll give heed to deceiving evil spirits and to the doctrines of demons. I can't think of any other way to describe what's going on in our nation right now that we have a group of people who have a religion that is made up by demons. That somehow, uh, Karen was showing me this, and she was, she was kind of proud of it. Hey, look, this guy, this Republican in the House of Representatives, what a brave man. He actually stood up and publicly said, there's only two genders. And now saying there's only two genders makes you a brave man. What happened here? And this all happened, what, the last three or four years? Everything flipped. It says they're speaking lies and hypocrisy, having their own conscience seared with a hot iron. The love of many will grow cold. I don't want to hear about the truth. Forbidding to marry, commanding to abstain from foods from God created to be received with great thanksgiving. Those who believe and know the truth, which is the hallmark of a true believer. We get to 2 Timothy, which is Paul's last letter before he died to his son in the faith. Here's what he says, warning. But know this, what? That in the last days, perilous times will come. I shared with you, um, again, two weeks ago about the passage in Romans chapter 1. You really need to read it. It's the death knell of a culture. God gave them up. God gave them over. God gave them up. And there's no return from the depraved mind, which is the time we're at right now. There's sexual revolution in the beginning, 60s and 70s. There's a homosexual revolution. After that, the second God gave them up to experience the consequences of their sins, that's the 90s and first part of uh, the 2000s, and then, of course, there's this strange, perverted mind that they have. What he wrote in Romans 1 is the same thing he's writing here. These are perilous times that are going to come, because the first thing that's going to happen is people are going to be narcissistic. Well, where did that phrase come from? It seems like all of a sudden everybody's talking about narcissism. We never heard of narcissism in the 90s, and now all of a sudden everybody's narcissistic and everybody's taking selfies, and life is all about you because the first thing that's going to happen is they'll be lovers of themselves. It's a curse. Lovers of money, boasters, arrogant, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents. I mean, Disney has been teaching us to do that for 50 years. 
unthankful, unholy, unloving, unforgiving. They'll be slanderers, without self-control, brutal, despisers, despisers of good, traitors, headstrong, haughty, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Yet, they'll claim to follow God. They'll claim to be a believer. They'll have a form of godliness on the outside, but no power on the inside which means no Holy Spirit. They are totally deceived and apostatized. And Paul says, run from those people. Have nothing to do with those people. Be done with them. It's a curse of a culture we're right in the middle of. And then he gives his final call to his son. 2 Timothy chapter 4. For the time will come when not you, not true believers, but those that apostatize, that they will not endure sound doctrine. Well, what will they do instead? Well, according to their own desires, because they're lovers of themselves, they, and, the, they uh, and they because they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers, and they will turn their ears away from the truth, and they'll be turned aside to fables. That the new religion will be whatever you want it to be. And this is the time in which we live and it's only getting worse. So, so what do we do? This is the homework side. How are we supposed to stand against this? And I've shared this with you before, and I want to share it with you again, that uh, the problem is not the problem is too great. The darkness is too great. It's not that you know, the deception is so powerful, we're just swept away and don't know what to do. The problem is our God is too small. He's not small, but one thing I've learned about him is he will be just as small in your life as you make. He lives in you. All the power of the Godhead lives in you. The Holy Spirit takes up residence in you. You're given these incredible promises that what God can do Uh, by living in you. But if we put him on the back burner or lock him up in a broom closet, I want nothing to do with him because we're too busy calling our own shots, loving what we do, being a lover of money and a lover of pleasure, and it's all about my life right now, then your God will be way too small. And if your God is way too small, when you get ready to draw upon him or need him, you're not even going to know the God that you need. This is why we have time now to, uh, to change all that. We're going through the Creation Museum, and I saw this little, um, I saw this little story, and it was just, there was a history of the Bible, and this little story about this man called Sennacherib. And uh, I started reading about it, and I knew the story, but I really started looking at it in 2 Kings uh, 18 and 19. I found out there's a parallel account in the book of Isaiah. I didn't even make that connection, and And all of a sudden, I realized how really powerful our God is. That's your homework. Uh, And I'm going to share a slide with you that will share some of that in just a few minutes. But before that happens, I want to close by reading this to you. This is an article that I received this week. uh, And the question was, why do evangelical churches look so much like the secular culture around them? And I know you guys aren't probably as students of churches as I am, uh, but... uh, Whatever the world wants to do, the church wants to do, and they want to do it just as well to attract a crowd of people who have marginal commitment to Christ, if at all. 
but uh, nevertheless pay for a seat in the auditorium for some sort of experience. So the question is, if we're supposed to be light and darkness, why do we look so much like the secular world? So let me read this to you, and then I'll make one more comment, and then we'll, um, uh, I'll share your homework with you. It says, as the eschatological clock continues to tick, and we move closer towards the coming of Christ, and as we ever approach Christ's return, it seems like every self-promoting, virtue-signaling evangelical has jumped on the bandwagon of ever-shifting cultural movements. These trends, raising from the use of preferred pronouns to the misguided compassion for mothers who willingly take their unborn children to be killed on the altar of convenience, have been creeping into our churches and our homes, watering down the truth in God's word and robbing him of his glory and creation. Now, I don't know about you, but the last time I checked, the Bible told us that the Lord created male and female. Especially for Christians, you'd think this would settle the matter, but no. Today's society wants us to tiptoe around people's feelings, asking them what they'd like to be called rather than acknowledging the divine design and our evangelical leaders are increasingly craving. By giving in to this ludicrous demand, we are not only thumbing our nose at God's plan for his trophy creation, but we're also opening the floodgates to a tidal wave of moral relativism where truth is as fickle as the weather and God's word loses its teeth. Sure, Jesus told us to love and forgive, but let's not get wishy-washy here, folks. Abortion is a grave sin that takes an innocent life, and the last time I checked, the creator of the universe wasn't too keen on that. Psalm 139, verse 13 through 16, paints a beautiful picture of God's hand at work in the womb, so why are we so quick to extend a sympathetic pat on the back to those who who have chosen to snuff out that divine spark? Since when has the church ever had compassion on unrepented sin? By doing so, we risk diluting God's hatred of sin, making a mockery of the urgency of repentance, and undermining the power of redemption through Christ, not to mention we rob sinners of the divine guilt placed within their conscience by God himself, which is meant to convict them of their sin. As for the growing acceptance of worldly values and lifestyle among evangelicals, It seems we have become a bunch of spiritual chameleons, adapting our belief and practices to blend in with the ever-changing landscape of secular society. From twerking in the church parking lot, to sporting tattoos of Bible verses alongside of skulls and crossbones, we're drifting farther and farther away from the clear teachings of Scripture. Romans 12, 2 warns us not to conform to the world, but it seems we've traded our spiritual compass for a roadmap to cultural compromise. But these are just a few examples of the tidal wave of cultural movements threatening to wash away the distinctiveness of our faith. From embracing same-sex marriage to entertaining the idea of multiple pathways to God, it's no wonder our churches are starting to look more and more like social clubs rather than houses of worship. And all the while, the devil is rubbing his hand with glee as we dance in in the tune to his deception. So, what's a faithful believer to do in the sight of all this madness? Simple. Cling to the unchanging truth of Scripture. Refuse to be swayed by the siren song of popular opinion and proclaim God's glory and truth with boldness and conviction. After all, we're called to be salt and light in a dark and decaying world, not a bunch of spiritual chameleons blending in with the godless crowd. At the end of the day, it's high time for us to rise up, dust off our Bibles, and stand firm on the solid rock of God's Word. 
We must reject the temptation to bow down to the idols of modern culture and instead be unwavering ambassadors for Christ. Our mission is to spread the gospel, call sinners to repentance, and uphold the truth that there is no salvation apart from Jesus. To do this, we must first examine our own hearts and ensure they are living in obedience to God's command. We can't expect others to follow the narrow path if we ourselves are tracing down the broad road that leads to destruction. It's time to cast off the shackles of compromise, put on the armor of God, and engage in the spiritual battle that is raging all around us. We must lovingly but firmly confront the false teachings that have crept into our churches. This isn't about being judgmental or self-righteous. It's about contending for the faith that was once for all entrusted to the saints. That's Jude 3. You need to read it. We must be like Bereans who search the scriptures daily to see if what they were being taught was true. By doing so, we'll be equipped to discern truth from error and guard against the subtle deceptions of the enemy. Finally, we must remember that our ultimate goal is not to win arguments or to appear more righteous than others. Our purpose is to glorify God, share the good news of Jesus Christ, and demonstrate His love and grace to a lost and dying world. This may mean standing against the tide of popular opinion, enduring mockery and ridicule, or even facing persecution for our faith. But as Jesus promised in Matthew 5, 11-12, Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you, and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. We are divinely powerful with what God has placed in us. And the church needs us to stand up for him. I want to finish by sharing one quote to you that I had never seen before until this week. And it's from a Navy SEAL and an ultramarathoner. You may have heard from him, David Goggins. And he once famously said, again, this is, this is a warrior. He said that if 100 men go to war, 10 shouldn't be there. They're ill-equipped. They don't, they're not committed. You'd be better if you just stayed in the camp. 80 are just targets. They're not prepared. They're just going to go out there and get slaughtered. They're not taking the fight seriously. Of the hundred men that go to war, nine do most of the fighting, and only one is a warrior. Only one of a hundred stands for truth. And the question is, which one are we? Which one are we? Can you count on us, Lord, to be at least part of the nine that are fighting? Or are we part of the 80 that are just going to be targets out there because we're trying to vacillate between your kingdom and our kingdom and trying to somehow... You know, God, if, if my bright doesn't shine too bright, maybe the darkness will let me do the stuff that I want to do. And you and I both know how that is. Ten shouldn't be there. Eighty are just targets. Nine do most of the fighting. And only one is a warrior. And what the army does is it takes, our service does, it takes that one person and puts them all in separate teams. And they become our special forces. They become our SEAL teams. They become what we rely on the most. We have one life to live, one life to live in this dying culture. I can't think of a better way to live it than for him. Amen? Let me pray.